Come on, we haven't got all day. Well, hang on, where are we going? You wouldn't want to miss chemistry class, would you? By the way, what's your name? Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Greetings to you, dear listeners, and welcome to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we put a magnifying glass over the films of Amblin' Entertainment to see what deductions we can make along the way. I am your host, Andrew Godian, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the Watson to my homes, if you will, Joshua Glenn. Hi, Josh. Andrew, the game is afoot, my man. <laughs> you may think I'm being jammy giving myself Sherlock, but... As our recent Twitter poll deduced, I am the colder, more detached individual of this bearing. <laughs> by far, by far. Yeah, is is Watson known for crying uh, willy nilly? I feel like he pro- I feel like Watson would cry at ET. Yeah, <laughs> Back to the Future. I didn't cry in this one. It's it's nice to watch a film and not cry for a change. Mm. So, um, not an awful lot in this film instills tears in one's eyes. <laughs> we are indeed, of course. Uh, talking about Young Sherlock Holmes, which is the episode you've joined us for today. Directed by Barry Levinson, released in 1985, and of course produced by Amblin's Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall. Um, But for the people that don't know what Young Sherlock Holmes is all about, I'm going to hand it over to Joshua Glenn to let you in on the case. Josh. I will grab it from you, Mr. Gaudion. Uh, young Sherlock Holmes. We open on a snowy back street in Victoria, London. Victorian London, not Vic- Let me start that again. Go for it. Victoria, London. <laughs> it's kind on, of right. <laughs> we open on Victoria. Yeah, I suppose it is. Uh, yes, we're going to... Yeah. Like, leave it in. Leave all this in. Leave, leave this bumbling in. Uh, young Sherlock Holmes. We open on a snowy back street in Victorian London as a mysterious hooded figure stalks a portly man and shoots him in the neck with a blowgun. The portly man goes on to hallucinate all sorts of horrifying visions before accidentally killing himself in a bid to stop them. We then move to Brompton Academy in jolly old London town where a fresh-faced John Watson, played by Alex Cox, meets a youthful Sherlock Holmes, played by Nicholas Rowe, and immediately finds himself glued into the sidekick position. Holmes is friends with the in-house eccentric Wax Flatter, Uh, played by Nigel Stock, who previously played Watson in the 1965 TV series. Uh, He's a retired professor who still lives on school grounds and works on a series of wacky inventions, including some kind of Da Vinci flying machine. Wax Flatter's niece, Elizabeth, played by Sophie Ward, lives with him and is in a relationship with Holmes, seemingly providing him with an emotional connection to the world around him. These very emotions are what cause Holmes to lose the upper hand during his fencing lessons with instructor and confidant, Professor Wraith. Is it Wraith or Rafe? Wraith. Wraith. Uh, played by Anthony Higgins, an adult role model who is entirely on the level and demonstrably non-villainous. 
Uh, when a second man is found to have died by apparent suicide, Holmes begins to suspect foul play and brings his suspicions to the attentions of Scotland Yard's Detective Lestrade, played by Ro- uh, Roger Ashton Griffiths. Yes, that's right. Detective, not Inspector. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes is promptly rebuffed as the detective sees these as unrelated cases with no obviously suspicious elements. Uh, back at school, Holmes is escalating game of one-upmanship with the Ponzi Dudley, played by Earl Rhodes results in his being framed for cheating on an exam, causing him to be expelled by a school board seemingly resentful of his, in- of his intellect. As Holmes is leaving the school, he oversees the third murder by this blogan bastard, uh, who this time fires a dart into old wax flatter. The final sound he makes as he lays dying from a self-inflicted stab wound is Eh-tah. Cut loose from his education, having lost a dear friend, and with a series of bizarre clues popping up around him, Holmes vows to solve the case. His investigations, with trusty Watson and plucky Elizabeth by his side, lead him to uncover ancient Egyptian cults, underground pyramids, spooky graveyard hallucinations, atrocities of the British Empire, and villain reveals that are in no way completely stupid and dissatisfying. (laughs) The game, as he says on several occasions, is afoot. I, I, I can see we're already getting some of your thinly veiled critiques. <laughs> I do apologise for allowing. It's um, such a Sark such a shame that um, such a shame that they didn't go with the title "Young Sherlock and the Blow <laughs> and, the, and the Blowgun Bastard." <laughs> the, 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 the most conspicuous disguise in Victorian London was this figure, preceded by a, a, a huge uh, shadow. <laughs> A lot of old boys getting blow darted in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I wasn't quite sure of his name. I thought Portly Man was uh, a more important um, signifier than whatever the guy was actually called. I forget to. I forget to. That is in the opening act, anyway. But, yeah, um... that is the cold <laughs> open, isn't it? The yeah. cold open before that weird defensive disclaimer, <laughs> which I'm, <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, in, yeah. in due course. Because to kind of get back up what we were just saying. At the start and like at the end of the last episode, this is another one of these uh, collection of movies that like I have no mm-hmm. kind of cultural memory of at all, and I don't don't really feel like many other people have. So <laughs> it, it's one that we can't really go into a previous relationship because I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. I think I probably was made aware of it when the Corridor Crew guys did a piece on the yeah. the VFX on on their video. Yeah, that's, that's um... kind of the only extent to which I've ever been aware of it is that mm. and we'll go into more detail on this is that it does hold quite a landmark position in terms of visual effects yeah um but aside from that um it's it, it's kind of telling that it, neither of us have really had much relationship with it because it's not not one of amblin's biggest hitters and it like like with a lot of these smaller ones i imagine there is a small cult following out there. I've just never really seen that for a week of it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's so little cultural footprint, isn't there, with this one? Mm. And, and anywhere, really. Um, this, yeah, if, despite... you're a, if you're alive at the time and you live in the UK or Australia, you may recognise the film under its other title, Young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear. <laughs> I guess implying franchise aspirations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, there are many things in this that imply franchise aspirations. <laughs> make it sound a bit more Indiana Jonesy as well. To yeah, get, to yeah. Get the punters in. <laughs> but um, I to kind of go off on that to 
get the punters in, as it were. Um, I think it's quite significant that this is our what our fourth film now from released in 1985 from Amblin. I think so. And it's and, not and the last. I was going to say you're not even the final one. We have one more left after this. Yeah. And uh, we've we've bought. I brought up a couple of times in the last episode over how we were just kind of stuck in this what I think is um, I, I think some other years might come close but this might be the most produced films in a single year for Amblin and I thought it'd be like because it keeps coming up it might be worth kind of going into where Amblin were in 85 and why it is that there's this kind of big uh, little push kind of bulging out of uh, productions as it were at this time because uh at the start of '85, um, I, what we, what they're following is a sequence of like three pretty successful, huge hits on both the kind of producing capacity and Spielberg himself directing because he had Poltergeist, E.T., and Gremlins. All all three of those were significant hits. Um, E.T. in particular being you know one of the most successful films of all time at that juncture. Um, and even Spielberg himself, outside of Amblin, was still um, raking it, raking in the dough <laughs> by uh, <laughs> by uh, making the first two Indiana Jones movies over at Paramount with Lucasfilm. Um, I don't know if you've had anyone ask why we haven't done an Indiana Jones films, um, but if you were wondering, that is why they are at Lucasfilm, mm. not at Amblin. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> it does have an Amblin vibe, doesn't it? Indiana yeah. Jones. I guess in, a lot of Amblin films do try and approximate the indie quality mm-hmm. as well. The popular Spielberg of the time. Because <laughs> they all kind of hit a similar tone just by their nature. Yeah. But um, I, And I think why 85 is like quite a significant year for producing, particularly on the producing side of Spielberg, because this is the kind of year where he does take a bit of a backseat from directing. Yes, he has the colour purple out at the end of the year, but I think it would be fair to say that most of his energies throughout most of this year are dedicated towards the more, uh, the Amblin productions in that uh, exec producer capacity. Mm. And 85 is the kind of, the peak of the boom of like the home video market era, particularly in the US. Over the course of 85, there was a 10% drop in uh, theatre attendance as more and more video stores kept popping up across the country so i think that kind of demonstrates the sort of pressure that not just spielberg and amblin but pretty much every cinema studio in in hollywood at that time had to kind of build the sort of pictures and productions that would uh bring people away from just going out to a video store and renting something or start like you say starting up your own video collection at home with what titles there were available at that time um and you kind of you kind of see it in 85 where just before young sherlock holmes he is coming off the kind of one two hits of the goonies and back to the future bit two films that kind of encapsulate ambling quite well for that sense of kind of big big screen blockbuster Mm. spectacle that kind of works on this wide um kind of uh, appeal so that it is young audiences, teenagers, and kind of adults can all kind of go to it and enjoy. So th- these are the you can feel that these are the sort of productions that they would be very keen to focus on in the wake of this kind of fresh competition from a home video market. 
Mm. So with that in mind, you kind of feel like putting young Sherlock Holmes in 1985 for a Christmas release following the Goonies and Back to the Future, that there's got to be kind of very high hopes that this film is going to do those sort of numbers and kind of coming good on the Amblin brand that's been built up to such kind of a, a good a good measure at this juncture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so to go into Young Sherlock Holmes, it's um, the third time that Spielberg taps Chris Columbus to work on a screenplay for him. The first one, of course, being Gremlins, which was a Columbus idea. The second one being the 85 Zone, The Goonies, which was a Spielberg story that Columbus then wrote up for him. And then moving on to Young Sherlock Holmes, which was, again, a Columbus idea. Um, and one that, um, even from kind of like looking at the film in and of itself, and uh, particularly by how it's uh, bookended, um, yes. Columbus has a real, <laughs> you feel kind of Columbus's <clears throat> nervousness around working around a such towering uh, yeah. figure of uh, pop culture. We should say it's bookended with like messages that kind of detail that, like, uh, uh, whilst we are aware that uh, Sherlock yeah. Holmes and Watson have met in other established canon at a different point in this life, this is just a bit of fun. Well, <laughs> I, I, I took the liberty of noting down what it says at, at the very, mm. very start after the cold open when the portly gentleman is, is shot with the blow dart. The caption comes up on the screen that says, The following story is original and is not specifically based on the exploits of Sherlock Holmes as described in the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And then at the very end, just before the just before mm. the credits start to roll, there's another one that's even more kind of right, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Although Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did not write about the very youthful years of Sherlock Holmes and did establish the initial meeting between Holmes and Doctor Watson as adults, this affectionate speculation about what might have happened has been made with respectful admiration and in tribute to the author and his enduring works, which. Um, you can kind of see him looking over his shoulder for approval with these with these with these um, title cards, can't you? Yeah, and it and it's almost like he's thinking that no one's ever taken liberties with the character yeah. of Holmes before. <laughs> it's it's almost quite because now we're I think we're so used to having these revisionist approaches to characters and kind of films and and properties based in the world of these um, iconic works that that aren't based word for word maybe it was a bit more of a novelty back in 85 to base something in this existing world but you know it's a good point sp yeah spin a fresh it yarn it's, it's quite um novel and quite sweet to see someone being so cautious with it yeah rather than just like uh john lee miller and lucy lou going off on their merry way and something yeah, like yeah. elementary <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i think that's it like that same kind of um worry almost it was carried over by spielberg a bit as well because he once columbus had done a run on the script spielberg was equally quite keen to keep it faithful and not to um sour the milk with the mm. Holmes fan base uh <laughs> sherlockians i think is the, the yes the given yeah name. yeah I, I believe it is yeah <laughs> um so yeah that led to spielberg hiring a sherlockian john B bennett shaw <laughs> to silly, have a read of the words. screenplay yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and provide notes on its uh, Sherlockian traits, I guess, and where yeah. they could beef up the homesness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he 
also had English novelist Jeffrey Archer act as a script doctor to anglicize the script mm-hmm. and ensure a certain level of kind of, I guess, English schoolboy authenticity. Yeah, yeah. Judging like Chris Columbus did, of course, go on to make the first two Harry Potter movies, so he clearly has a thing for British boarding school. (laughs) 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 Maybe he wishes he had gone to one. (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. (laughs) Christopher, yes. Um. And with like kind of the idea in place... um, I think Columbus was still about 27 and still was yet to make a make a movie himself. So mm. uh, he was still a few years off get, uh, at a point where I feel like Spielberg would have felt comfortable handing in directorial reins. Yeah. So uh, as we've seen it, it's a case in the past with a lot of uh, these movies so far when it comes to Spielberg choosing director, um, he goes, this kind of had shades of Michael Apted tiring for me where he kind of looks to yeah, see who's absolutely. kind of a new like kind of fresh emerging filmmaker who's got a lot of uh, particularly critical love behind him from his mm. uh previous efforts as uh the, the man that they that Spielberg tapped to direct it is uh Barry Levinson um perhaps best known to listeners for directing Good Morning Vietnam and winning the best director Oscar in uh 88 for Rain Man he also made Toys in 1992. Toys, not forgetting his previous collaboration with Robin Williams. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he he's uh, another one in the kind of, I'm trying to think of the sort of, I guess the sort of vein of Mike, Michael Apted, like I say, in that he's kind of buoyed up from this uh, cr- critical success for films that on the surface don't really fit what we expect of an Amblin brand. Mm. Mm-hmm. If you will, uh, just to give you some background on the guy, um, he Levinson was born in Baltimore, Maryland, in 1942, and he broke into show business in the early 70s by writing a number of different variety shows, including the Marty Feldman Comedy Machine, Cal Burnett Show, and the Tin Conway Show. And this kind of comedic pedigree um, saw him um, get introduced to Mel Brooks, who hired Levinson as part of his writing teams for his movies uh silent movie in 76 and high anxiety in 77 and uh this helped bolster levinson's kind of uh name around town as a a dependable screenwriter screenwriter um uh this kind of culminating with 1979's and justice for all which earned uh levinson's first uh oscar nomination for best original screenplay and he kind of carried on on this strength in the early 80s with a screenplay credit on Richard Donner's Inside Moves. Who knew that was going to be a film that would come up again so soon? <laughs> it's the new Red Dawn for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and and he also wrote the Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn comedy Best Friends in 82, along with some uncredited rewrites on Tootsie, I believe. <laughs> um. But in 82, Levinson also made his directorial debut with the coming-of-age comedy drama Diner, which scored him his second nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And this is very much the, the kind of... It feels like a real quintessential directorial yes, debut. Yeah. Right? It's this kind of uh, personal film because it's a drama set in Baltimore, Maryland, so Levinson's hometown. And it's set in the late 50s, so a time he would have definitely... Have grown up in an experience firsthand 
and follows like these young men uh, and the eponymous dinos where they kind of all collectively meet up throughout their kind of going about their existence and chat about their young adult lives and it has a like a great cast of kind of mm. soon to be famous people with the rip young uh mickey rourke kevin bacon steve guttenberg steve guttenberg daniel stern, stern snap Paul riser <laughs> yeah um, uh, i love this movie right it, yeah, you've you've always been uh, you've always been a big fan, and I watched it for the first time because whenever we do directors who work for Amblin on like their third or fourth film, I like to yeah. try and go back and, and watch everything Feels leading quite easy up to, to it. Catch yeah, up. <laughs> like with the, the the Hoopers and the Dantes, it's quite easy to catch up and just just see what Spielberg might have seen in them and see what they fed into their Amblin Amblin film. And um, yeah, it's it's great. It's it's an incredibly confidently directed film isn't it so some of the yeah. visual choices that he makes and some of the the motifs that he has swirling throughout uh, it look it looks great i mean one thing that levinson has sustained throughout the first three films is the films always look really rich and really meaty and um i don't know a peer, a film that's that entrenched in period detail as a debut mm. is quite a, an impressive feat isn't it yeah yeah um, uh, it's i i was introduced to it by my housemate Reese Edwards, um, future guest, future guest, absolutely, yes. yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like kind of my go-to authority on like movies about people talking because that's kind of his, yeah, uh, one of his like very, very favorite niches. <laughs> 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 and it, yeah, and this is just one damn fine f- film about people talking. <laughs> very, very entertaining bickering in that film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But also, like, I think it's also got, which I didn't quite expect, it has quite a self-critical eye. It's very much aware of the mm. foibles of, of boys at that age, when when boys yeah, are definitely. that arrogant and that entitled. And the diner's kind of a safe haven that is almost sealed off from the world around them, and they don't, they're not yet aware of the consequences of, of their actions and stuff like that. And, and it's quite, it's, it's like, it's rose-tinted in one regard, but in another regard, it's very much aware of, of the shortcomings of young male thinking and, yeah and, and there's some quite some quite like kind of dark morally dark beats yes, in there as well yeah yeah in the mix um but uh, it's, it's cool that he does like it, it doesn't feel overly moralistic or it doesn't feel like wrist yeah. slapping it it's quite a a nuanced way of dealing reconciling i think with that kind of thing but yeah, it's great a great a great movie mm-hmm. um and in between Moving from Diner to Young Sherlock Holmes, he had one other movie, the Robert Redford starring baseball drama The Natural, that was released <laughs> in '84. Um, th- this is, uh, I'm sure there are plenty of sport movie fans out here, but and Simpsons fans as well. So you may more, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you may more know it for the parody in The Simpsons that uh, when football, uh, when Homer's on the plant baseball team and he makes his wonder bat out of a tree struck by lightning that's lifted directly from him (laughs) (laughs) which which makes like the the first act of the natural quite hard to take seriously (laughs) especially that that's kind of like homer at the bat is kind of like the first simpsons episode that sets the tone for what it would be at its best like that kind of surreal um (laughs) it's so yeah it's so weird because i Ba- baseball's not particularly something that I think either of us have much of a fondness or, for or knowledge of, is it? Um, as, as a sport, I'm not really a sportsman, anyway. And for the first for the first sort of twenty or so minutes of the natural, it it just 
it was <laughs> the Simpsons did a pretty much shot for shot parody, didn't they? Of yeah. That movie. So it's really hard to watch it and take it at face value. Um, but yeah, I, I was very surprised with that because after getting over that initial hump, I really fell into its grooves nicely, and I really enjoyed basking in that again, that rich atmosphere. And it was just a, yeah. a night. It had a nice, nice rhythm to it, and it was just a nice world to be in uh, aesthetically. Yeah. I think Caleb Deschanel shot it, and it is oh. a, it's constantly yeah. gorgeous. It Absolutely, looks amazing. yeah, yeah. And it, I, I, I found it a bit dull. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I could. Yeah, I, I was, I was very surprised by my, my response to that film, but um, just it just really hit me in the right places. Um, a home run, if you will. A, ho- <laughs> a, a, a veritable home run. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's fine. That's, I'll allow that, Andy. That's I'm sorry fine. about that's that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's cool. It's, there will be worse uh, gags I reckon in this episode. Um, so don't, <laughs> don't worry too much. But yeah, it's two you, for two. Yeah, you you've kind of touched on it there with. with what you picked out from Diner and the natural and their commonalities is this attention to period mm. detail. Um, and for me, that's kind of like the only real thread that I can, when you just kind of look on the surface of these as to what kind of connects D- Diner, um, yeah. the natural and Sherlock. Um, so yeah, but I, I guess it's just, it, it's an example of um, Spielberg's, um, again, his ability to tap talent and that he's enjoying the work of and kind of um, using the brand, as it were, to, again, bolster them. But And the, the, you sent uh, the article over to me just before the show mm. from the New York Times. That was from the time, and I think it kind of goes into like a... It asks kind of Spielberg why he chose Levinson because it also has this kind of similar, like, looking at the natural and diner, you wouldn't automatically assume that Levinson would be the guy you tap to make your next uh, visual effects um, holiday blockbuster. Um, but I think the kind of response Spielberg had, I feel, speaks a lot to yeah. his kind of decision making in, in this capacity anyway. Because he said, um, I felt Barry was sort of a frustrated action-adventure director. He'd always wanted a shot at making an adventure story into a movie. We spent a long time talking and talked about tempo and pacing about having no dead air, no time to find the holes in the story, just going straight through with a lot of energy. I'd like this movie to go bim, bam, boom, he said. I was convinced he could do it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I, I, even Levinson kind of echoes mm. that in the same article, right, saying how this opportunity was a chance for him to kind of almost uh, dabble in his own curiosity as to how far he could kind of push himself and what sort of um, maybe explore some of his own strengths and limitations because he said uh, an intriguing aspect of this for me was a chance to push against those borders and expand my abilities so that even if you return to a diner like movie later you have these tools at your disposal you always wonder if you can do it if it's something is too much to bite off in one try but I'm just optimistic enough that I'm a quick learner and good enough on my feet that it will work out, which is a nice attitude yeah. to go into. And hey, isn't that it? is completely fair, and you, you cannot, you've got to respect that. You cannot, you, know, you yeah. cannot deny someone that. Yeah. Because I, I always do think, uh, like, put yourself in their shoes at this kind of moment in time, even if you're not. And I guess you kind of, like, I know people comment about it, like, the weird kind of sense of high reward today in Hollywood is mm. someone makes a promising movie and then gets offered a. Um, comic book movie straight off yeah. the bat. 
And like like in, in Emerald Fennell's case, she literally yes. made a promising movie, promising young woman, yeah. and was offered a Marvel film. Is it Marvel or was it just another DC, a DC the, film? It's a DC one. Um, um, yeah, that's a kind of the recent example of it. And yeah. I kind of feel like you can transplant that sort of relationship to what's kind of going on with Amblin in the 80s and Spielberg mm. himself as a um, studio or, or as a brand. Yeah. Um, I feel like this is kind of similar um, in the kind of workings of it, of see, seeing promising talent coming up and tapping them because they have a lot of potential in it. And even on, on the filmmaker side, and I, I think this is the same with the kind of comic book parallel today, if you are offered that kind of chance with that kind of brand at that moment in time where it is the kind of the main form of popular culture for a lot of people, um, I think it'd be very, very hard to say no. <laughs> for sure, yeah. And 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 to that point, in, in the same New York Times article, Levinson does talk about the Spielberg brand. And there's a quote where he says, uh, in the best days of Hollywood, there used to be such a thing as an MGM picture or a Warner Brothers film. And even though they did all kinds of films, you sort of knew the MGM film from a Warner Brothers film. That's applicable to Steven and Amblin. There's a certain kind of film. Back to the Future is not at all like Gremlins, but there is something that crosses over uh, that has some kind of link. I don't think you can define it specifically, but it's part of the product Stephen would be interested in. A strong story, strong characters, good cause and effect situations. Those are some of the elements we might uh, look for in a Spielberg-type movie. He has a real good sense of movie making about which scripts are going to offer that kind of change, uh, charge to the audience, rather. So, yeah, the, the, the likening of that brand to the old Hollywood studio system is quite interesting, too, because I guess if, if the Amblin Spielberg brand of the 80s is to the 80s what Marvel is to today, yeah. the studio system very much is that Spielberg brand of the 30s and 40s. So it's quite an, an interesting it's... lineage there. Yeah, and I guess like the only real, like the main kind of, I guess, issue that a lot of people take now is that the comic kind of like going down the comic book route is a little more bottlenecked than something yeah. like studio output and even like an Amblin output. Um, so I guess it is this kind of history of it getting slightly narrower that is kind of reflected in that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that is true. I suppose that is true. Because on the one hand, we no longer have something like the Hays Code that, that literally restricts what can be put on screen. But by the same token, when you've got Disney hoovering up all these prop, all these um, different production houses and whatnot, you do have this blanket company ethos stamped over these uh, these these different movies. To, to the degree where you have Daryl Hannah with CGI hair covering her bottom in Splash on <laughs> Disney+. Plus. Um, but hell, I mean, you know, I, I think you, you could look at it as narrowing, which it kind of is, but at the same time, you could look at it as as it's always been like this, and this is just yeah. the new... Even, even insofar as how studios, you know... One These of the, things will pass. Yeah. <laughs> one of the reasons you gave for 85 being so um, saturated with particularly Amblin blockbusters is, is to try and counteract the home video craze. That is an analogue for the streaming wars of today. So it, yeah. these kind of conflicts are always going to be there. And, you know... There's a lot to of quote George Lucas. It rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like poetry. It rhymes. Right. Is that it our rhymes. first uh, George Lucas impression? It might be. On the, it on might this. be. Wow. wow. <laughs> and that was the Owen Wilson. Maybe for some the first Owen Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Two debuts, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it here, Faust. Get Faust. Oh my good god. <laughs> going, going wacky. Um, 
But yeah, to kind of go off on that. So you think it, uh, now these talents are aligned and what have you, this yeah. does feel like a problem. And as I said, they're kind of going into the concepts, following off the Goonies and Back to the Future. You're kind of, they must have been kind of looking at this and going, this is a no-brainer. We've got um, the guy who wrote two of our hit movies on mm. it. We've got new hot thing, Barry Levinson on it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> dealing with uh, kind of a property and a character that like so many people know and kind of have a baked in relationship with. This is surely going to be another one, uh, another hit for the Amblin house. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as Christmas released in 1985 rolled, <laughs> <laughs> um, that, did not turn out to be the case as no, sir. Um, young Sherlock Holmes only earned 11.4 million in its first 26 days across the Hollywood period before only going on to earn 19 million worldwide off of a budget of 18 million. So I think I know Continental Divide made only 15 off 9 million, but that's still technically more of a profit. Yeah, yeah. So I would say I would say that this is categorically and particularly coming off the wake of like the Goonies and um and Back to the Future and being held up as the Christmas holiday release, this would be the first film out of this bunch to kind of be categorized as a flop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I, I mean I I I don't <sighs> I don't think it's a it's an egregiously bad film. I just no. think that I mean, there's, there's a quite. I was looking at some of the reviews, and, and Pauline Kael summed it up quite nicely. Mm. Uh, she said, "This sounds like a funnier, zestier picture than it turns out to be. As long as the movie stays within the conceits of the Holmesian legends, it's mildly, blandly amusing. But when one of your imperiled old men gives an elaborate account of the background of the villainy, your mind drifts and you lose the plot threads. And when the picture forsakes fog and coziness." Uh, and the keenness of Holmes's intellect, when it starts turning him into a dashing action-adventure hero, the jig is up. The movie lets you down with a thump when Holmes and his companions enter a wooden pyramid temple hidden under the London streets. There's a resounding hollowness at the centre of the picture, Levinson's Temple of Doom, which is pretty... I, Levinson's it, Temple <laughs> of Doom. <laughs> much, more, much more succinctly and uh, eloquently sums up kind of my reaction to the film. Like, it's not something that's particularly... What are you trying to say? <laughs> sums up, up my reaction, not your reaction. <laughs> no, no, I was saying... You could, you could do Pauline Kale levels if you want to. <laughs> you have it, didn't you? <laughs> oh, shucks. That's nice. Um... But yes, and, and I think that the heart of the problem is, a, 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 as much as Levinson, I think he's a very good director. When I first saw his name attached to this film, I thought, oh, okay, so it's going to be like a, a sort of journeyman guy for hire kind of thing. But having done a bit of a, um, a re, uh, you know, I've gone to the start of his career and watched his first two films before this. He, he does, he has a, he's a confident director and he, he's not just mm. a journeyman. He brings a certain sense of soul to the stuff that he does. But I just think the fundamental problem with this is he's he's really good at sort of stationary storytelling, like slow burn character studies about people that are almost stuck in a certain milieu. Whereas young Sherlock Holmes, by his and Spielberg's admission, is about propulsion and momentum and, and sort of getting this gripping, engaging plot going. And those two things to me are just at odds. So I, I quite like this film for the first half. I thought it was quite... Um, quite enjoyed being in a school with the boys and seeing those dynamics and 
and and the world building and the the, the, the period detail the production design i really enjoyed as well but as soon as um i guess as soon as he gets expelled and he, and he commits himself fully to solving the case and it takes on this slightly kind of sub temple of doom um vibe and it just it, for me it just it felt quite flat and by the end of it i was just completely i checked out completely and you can see if back in 85 after a year of films like the goonies and back to the future you leave the you leave this film with a, with a kind of not a sour taste in your mouth but with a with a slight exhaustion over it and Word of mouth is, as Back to the Future proved, word of mouth, word of mouth is super important in, in, in the mid-80s to making or breaking a film. And you can see how this would just have had no cultural impact at the time and the word of mouth that it would have needed to have you know, taken light would not have been there. So I think you know, through that prism, it's quite easy to see how this film you know, only made 19 million off of an 18 million budget. Yeah, yeah, and... and uh... It's not much that I would disagree with you or your your kind of summation of the yeah the the cut almost the kind of patter of the film mm. as it were because you do have um for much of the first half it is this kind of school uh schoolboy adventure story going along with this deeper darker deadlier mystery alongside it until they kind of both end up on the same path yeah and it is a more entertaining film when it is kind of treating the two halves a, a little apart or just kind of the odd kind of dovetail into um either characters in Holmes's life or just um, set up to um build up the kind of vi- villainous plot and having these kind of showcases of the hallucinogen um which cause- causes people to imagine a variety of strange and weird things so you you end up having this kind of um, visual effects blockbuster for the time paired with this kind of boys own adventure running parallel and then when they kind of end up having to inevitably kind of combine it falls away into very um, kind of unengaging and like even the kind of like on a production design level it falls away because mm-hmm, you go yeah. from this quite well produced Victorian era London to a set that just looks like <laughs> it does just look like a cheap knockoff of the fuggy cult in yeah Temple of Doom. yeah it does it does <laughs> like a, a fisher price version maybe yeah <laughs> and just even then like the kind of as it starts to um reveal itself that it's a conspiracy focused around ancient egyptian um cults and um british colonial sins yeah um it ends up having a kind of I know n- nothing really feels like it kind of fits partly because a lot of the time you're just being told things by old, uh, <laughs> old men, <Yeah. laughs> old, old white men lamenting their yeah. um, past lives. And it, and yeah, it just feels a bit, bit drab and a bit Fisher price. Like <laughs> yeah. And even, even that kind of the, the, I must say as well, I'm not particularly um, acquainted with Holmes as a as a figure or yeah, that's as a, a literary. Point, actually, I've never read question. any of his books. My girlfriend's got the whole like uh, Sherlock Holmes almanac. I've never dabbled in that before. All I really know, I've seen a few episodes of the '80s um, BBC series that stars. Uh, I made a note. I went through before this and made a note of all of the on-screen adaptations of Holmes before now. 
<laughs> so the the Granada one, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I've seen a few episodes of that, and I've seen obviously the, yeah, that the, rings the bell. The Cumberbatch one on on BBC. I've seen for my sins the bloody Guy Ritchie adaptation, but I'm not particularly. I, quite, acquainted. I like the first one of those. <laughs> I suppose it's you know charming enough, but um, but I you know you you, you I guess with with Sherlock Holmes you feel you can rely on a satisfying intellectual bite to them. Like the the the, the resolution eventually wraps up in a way that is retroactively logical and makes sense. Whereas with this film, um, the warning signs were there early on when there's a scene in a school when he and the aforementioned Ponzi boy Dudley, who he has this rivalry with, Dudley sets him the challenge of finding a, a, a trophy that he has hidden in the schoolyards. Oh, yeah. And Sherlock's got to try and find this thing. And it's you know it's it's, it's, a, it's a fun enough sequence of him apparently deducing. That's probably my favourite bit. <laughs> yeah, but then, but then the, the the thing is, like, once he finds the thing, you kind of see you see the external aspects of his thought process, and then you see him find the trophy in a vase. But then he kind of half-heartedly explains to Watson his thought process that got him there, and it doesn't quite make sense, and it kind of feels. I don't know, maybe you can overlook that as, as a kind of cutesy little thing on Columbus's part, but it doesn't really add up and it doesn't really make any sense. And that is in minor what the ultimate resolution of the mystery is, you know, with, with the Egyptian cult and with the, the British colonial sins of the past. The way that those things do dovetail at the end, it's quite a tossed off, nonsensical resolution. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I feel like that... that... You can kind of comparing that to previous Holmes stories. I think you bring up a good point in that, like part of the reason that there is a lot of appeal for this character, and particularly the Conan Doyle stories, mm. is because the resolutions and the deductions and everything always really kind of made you like cock your eyebrows and kind of go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I. Uh, that's for me the kind of the the appeal of a home story is to kind of go into these cases not know how it figures out and then you think you've got the whole thing but then there's a couple of little details that you are still bugging your mind and yeah. then they reveal it in a way that is kind of satisfying uh, a little bit smug but you'll let them get away with it if you think <laughs> yeah. if you are convinced by how clever it is yeah and this is unfortunately not quite as sharp as like any kind of classic conan Doyle. no Sim- similar to you, I've not read too many. I've read The Hound of Baskervilles. That's the only one I've actually read. But I've seen a couple of the um, Basil Rathbone and... Uh, oh, who plays what? Nigel Bruce. Mm-hmm. Um, 30s movies. And I've gone on to see, like yourself, the Downey Juniors and the Cumberbatch TV series. So there's enough familiarity with the character on my part to, and i'm sure for most people's part because this is one of those kind of characters in culture where even if you've not really engaged with sherlock holmes you still know the um elementary my dear watson or the game is a fur mm-hmm. or the look of the deer skin deer stalker hat and the pipe which is where this film uh, another kind of gear that this film operates in is in being these one of these kind of young origin stories which you do see quite a few of where it's like where did this <laughs> thing come from where did that hat come from where did the pipe come from where did his his penchant for saying the game is a foot come from it does this kind of checklist approach to the yeah. kind of origin points of like you know 
the most recent example again to sorry to continually bring up disney properties but um solo a star wars story is the kind of closest in approximation i could feel who are your people who are your people are you here with people or are you alone i'm alone (laughs) we'll put solo (laughs) do you know um do you listen to the komodo mayo show on on bbc uh five five sometimes not all the time sometimes there's um as as a as a member of the church myself that there's a phrase that i think mark commode coined or maybe it was john ronson one of those there's a kind of back and forth between those two as to who coined it um he calls it the chubby hum moment have you heard of that the chubby hum yeah i have heard of that it's yeah. uh, apparently it's from the karen carpenter story there's, there's a bit in the karen carpenter story when she reads something in the paper in which she's called chubby and that's, you know, that's kind of like the moment when it slides into place, what ultimately happens to her. And it's what he uses to describe um, clunky character examples, uh, character establishment in, in particularly biopics. But I think it really applies to these character prequels. So Solo is is lousy with them. Um, but yeah, young Sherlock Holmes is, is, is chock full of chubby moments, like when he gets the deerstalker hat or when he gets the pipe at the end. Or there's, yeah. there's a, there's a... Oh, that hat looked silly yes. on your Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, there's, there's a recurring bit that the, the in my slightly disdainful synopsis towards the start, I talked about um, <laughs> how his telegraphed villain confidant, Professor Rath. Ah, Wraith, yes. Wraith. Wraith, Wraith or Rath. Maybe Rath, because he's full of Wrath, ah. isn't he? For, uh, yeah, so his, his kind of mental figure turns out to be the villain, which was, you know, oh, uh, as nonsensical Did as not it is see frustrating. That an um, Anglo-Egyptian, yeah, dude, right? Yeah, <laughs> but um, who lo- it does just look like, oh, like an English dude. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> Thankfully, they they don't attempt to darken his his complexion, which which would be a whole no. roster of issues for us to wade through. Um, he in in the, in the fencing lessons, he keeps telling uh, Holmes that his emotions are getting the better of him and distracting him and stuff. And mm. Elizabeth, his 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 partner, his girlfriend in the thing, in the thing in the movie, is um, <laughs> she is kind of his anchor to the emotional world, and th- there is very much a, an attempt to show no, no second guesses as to what happens to her. <laughs> yeah, which is something I want to talk about as well in in greater detail. Yeah. But there there is, I think, like the 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 emotional reserve that Holmes has as an adult figure. This film tries to get to the bottom of that, and and, and even that. There's so many parallels with with Solo in terms of structure and the way it treats that character because you've um, Han Solo is played by Alden. Um, how do you say his surname? Iron Reich. Iron Reich. Thank you for that. He 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 has a similarish demeanor to Sherlock Holmes in Solo, and by the end of it, you see where the him shooting first thing comes from, and and that sort of flippancy with regard to human lives and and, and honor and that kind of thing. So mm. there there is there's a lot of chubby hmm attitudes guiding the decisions made in this and i think there's even a quote from uh, from chris columbus saying the thing that was most important uh, to me was why holmes became so cold and calculating and why he was alone for the rest of his life that's why he's so emotional in the film as a younger as a youngster rather he was ruled by emotion he fell in love with the love of his life and as a result of what happens in the film he became the person he was later yeah so you do have that operating in here where it is trying to um, show that Holmes wasn't always like yeah. this. But <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> and I feel like that unfortunately kind of drives 
too much of the intention of the Elizabeth character. Yes. Where yes. she doesn't really end up kind of having a great deal to do other than um, be his girlfriend and be put in um, moments of distress. Yeah. And have to be saved and or and we, we will we'll get to that point where uh, her fate is kind of entwined with how Holmes will with who Holmes himself ends up becoming. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but and then on the other half of it, you've got it at operating as um the kind of budding bromance between <laughs> Holmes and Watson himself. Um. How how did you feel both Nicholas Rowe and Alan Cox? Who is the son of Brian Cox? Yeah, yeah, Watson. yeah. <laughs> <Well> I, <laughs> I, I did. I, How did I, you feel they did? <laughs> well, I, I, I really en- I enjoyed the moment when they, they first meet, and pretty much immediately, Holmes kind of grabs Watson and, and and sticks him in the sidekick role. I did quite enjoy how quickly that that dynamic was established. Oh yeah, it, it wastes no time. Yeah, whatsoever. yeah. It's like <laughs> literally their first meeting, and then Holmes is like, "Come on, Watson, we've got a thing to go to." And I did quite. I found that quite amusing. Um, I think. I, I I like Cox. I think Cox was quite good. Cox is good at doing that exasperated. Um, so he's very good at channeling what Watson ultimately becomes. I think he he's good at yeah. being that exasperated sidekick, and I, I did quite enjoy his performance. Um, Roe as Holmes, I thought. I, I I'm loath to to. <laughs> we did enough slugging off of child actors in the Goonies episode, so I don't want to. <laughs> um, no, I think Roth is basically okay. He just, he doesn't, you need to have a degree of dynamism, which is why Cumberbatch is such good casting, or why Danny Jr. is such good casting, or why people like, uh, you know, Cushing and his, like, in the mid-20th century were such good casting, because they have that implicit... Um, dynamism, even if it is slightly inward-looking, whereas Roe just seems a little bit of a weak screen presence, I think. Mm. Um, didn't quite ever take off for me. What, what, what did you think? I thought it kind of played quite nicely. He seemed to be the element that most that was kind of convincing me of Columbus's efforts to kind of show a Holmes that was more mm. emotionally attached and has this kind of... Uh, weird relationship with who he, he wants to be but knows that uh, he wants to at the very least be elizabeth and that's kind of the only sure thing that he really knows at this juncture yeah um so i feel like he like i agree that he's not quite got the like you say the kind of heavy level charisma that one would normally associate with individuals playing yeah uh a character quite so towering as holmes but i felt like there was at least enough of a kind of curiosity in his own sense of um, how to make, how to show what you knew of Holmes and when to kind of deliver something that's a bit different to yeah. really characterize this as this is a different guy, effectively, and this is not the same guy that you know that happens because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, Z, Z. <laughs> Z, Z, you know, that's cool. The whole thing off. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was. Yeah. And I thought he was quite good at, like, I was convinced that this was also a kid that was much smarter than his ears. Mm. 
But that did also just make me think, how old are they meant to be? Yeah, because like, I, I looked up their ages and, and um, her, the actor that plays Holmes is nine, was 19 at the time. Watson was 15 and Elizabeth was about 21. 15 feels where they're kind of... Yeah, for, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think maybe like mid-franchise Harry Potter age. <laughs> Yeah, Harry Potter. Which, now there's the... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is something that you flagged when, when you were texting me when you were watching it. This is something you flagged, so you, uh, you should be the one to broach this, I feel. Well, yeah, it's just, I think it'll be very hard for anybody who's like particularly more familiar with Harry Potter to watch this and not make those connections. Yes, it helps that Chris Columbus is a screenwriter, so you can kind of self-impose it to a certain degree the kind of connections that you're wanting to make. But I do feel like even down to the way this looks and the kind of tone it's striking is so akin to um, what Chris Columbus does, particularly in those first two Harry Potter movies, be it from the kind of, um, even just like the setting of being in Oxford and because it was shot in Oxford and having this kind of snowy courtyard scenes as yeah. child actors walk and talk about the mystery on that's, a foot it just does the, the whole vibe is like there are whole scenes and pat, patter of scenes particularly the school life scenes that just feel like a harry potter movie oh yeah <laughs> even the, the the central trio you've kind of it's it's not quite yeah. as clean as harry ron and hermione but it's still you have the two boys and the girl and, and you have yeah the one who's a bit more flustered and a bit uh a bit more ineffectual than the other two then you have the one who is slightly more intellectually wily and ahead of the curve and then, um, I, I don't know. I, I guess you have one who just kind of needs rescuing occasionally. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not the cleanest um, analog, but but it's there. It's, it's it, there. it is there. Yeah, it is there. Um, and I think and there's even a Dudley. A slight, slight sidebar. But I, I recently, I mean, I, I, as as lockdown has instilled within many of us, I've done a lot of franchise watch throughs uh, during the various lockdowns mm. we've had, and I watched all the Harry Potter films again recently, and. You know, I think you and I were both at a certain age when the first, when the Columbus ones came out, that it we were just the right age to buy into the magical world oh, on screen. Huge. So I think particularly the first one, I've got a huge level of uh, nostalgia for. But I think watching it again with more adult eyes, I do have an appreciation for what Columbus did on a logistical level with those films. Like the, the fact that he marshaled so many um, preteen actors through this world building. Um, uh, endeavor and got them to spout so much expositional dialogue and had to do so much with with, with such a, an unruly bunch of, of, of sort of young puppy dogs i think he did a, a very impressive job on those films chris columbus which is uh yeah I, I i think there's no way that the um kind of franchise could have felt the grounding that it needed to bring someone in like Quaron. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just don't sure. think that would happen if you didn't have that solid no, no. base. Because <laughs> he gets a lot of flack for being a bit of a journeyman. And I think he, he is more what you would think of as a journeyman than someone like Levinson is. But I, I, do, I do think there's very much a place for those filmmakers. And yeah, it, it shouldn't be understated what he did with those mm. first well, two Well, it just Potter makes films. me think whether like the first two Harry Potter films was Chris Columbus going, finally, young Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see him tightening some of the screws. I, I, do, I, I do like both of those films more than this. I, I, I yes, do I, I would agree. I have a, a large degree of, of, of fondness for those movies. Um, 
so yeah, yeah, there there is that kind of um, the, the 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 tin that you get shortbreads in aesthetic to this to this film, which is quite nice. And... That's a very good way to describe it because they always have that picture of a snowy Victorian street yeah. on the front, don't they? <laughs> it's just it's nice and and, and uh, it, it's very comforting and, and and very just it's just a nice place to be, isn't it? And I think when the film is in that mm. mode, it's at its, at its strongest. But it, it it is um when it when it has to to flick into adventure mode and it does this young Indiana Jones thing in the final half that it mm. yeah I don't know he just he just seems to go down a down a hill really fast not in a good way mm. and, and even to just to kind of bolster the Harry Potter point uh point do you do you kind of agree with me that the uh the score is set mm, is eerily yes, kind yes. of Williams Potter before Williams Potter. Yeah. That, again, it's because I do feel like Bruce Borton, who did compo- compose this film, he is operating in the key of Williams. He is. Yes. I feel, this feels like an example of someone being told do something similar to that. Yeah. To, yeah. Where, even to like the Egyptian, when you go down into the Egyptian, a uh, hidden underground temple in the middle of London. which the interior Um, of makes makes no sense (laughs) logistically yeah um there are even that piece of score just sound it sounds like a riff on the fucky cult chant in temple of doom it's weird yeah it absolutely does yeah there's a very close hue to it (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely man we've kind of gone off on what didn't really work for us and i think a lot of it Mm -hmm. comes down to the way that um like you were just saying the way that the kind of as soon as the mystery starts really folding in on the holmes and watson characters it becomes a bit more uh i there's not really a sense of kind of fresh energy to it and it uh kind of loses that um sense of bada bim bada boom pacing that Levinson would have liked to have yeah. achieved but I think in this first half when they, they are kind of on their two separate um, kind of uh, carriageways at that point is when the film's at its most fun even as sure. both a kids movie and as a mystery movie because you get this whole uh, you get whole sequences and they, they do kind of disappear from the film it's a shame there's sequences driven by this hallucinogen. Mm, um, yes, yes. Mysterious blow dart person is going around and shooting old white men with, <laughs> <laughs> um, causing them to hallucinate things from objects they're seeing in their environment to um, complete things completely out of the yeah. blue and driving themselves to commit suicide or have a accident yeah. in some yeah. in some uh, way that will make it look completely unsuspicious. Um, and part of the thing that I really like, they, they they probably do stand as my favorite sequences in the whole thing. Without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. yeah. Even when it gets to the weirder point where the kids have been shot mm-hmm. by the blow dart and they all start tripping out in the graveyard. <laughs> have they not seen it? E- <laughs> have they not seen Easy Rider? Don't trip out in the graveyard. <laughs> or bloody Fandango. Hmm. Well, I guess they weren't on anything. They were just uh, high on being not in Vietnam. High on, high on life, man. High <laughs> on life with the Garudas. <laughs> um, but yeah, wheelies. I think the, those sequences stand as my favourite because you have this kind of multimedia yes, energy to absolutely. them where there's 
practical puppetry and uh, stop motion animation. There's that really horrible sequence where Watson is imagining gremlins um patisseries and yes. cakes coming to life and attacking him <laughs> yeah it, uh, it's very much it goes hog wild with all uh, pretty much every form of, of, of practical and visual effects um and it's it is fun i think i i, I love the opening of the film when the the initial guy he gets shot as he's going into a restaurant and he sits down to eat a plate yeah. of, uh, of i don't know boiled goose or something and I have a... An, an, oh, yeah, it's like a pigeon or yeah, something, Yeah, something it? like that. <laughs> I have... Um, I wouldn't say it's a phobia, but I, I have an innate distrust of, of, of birds and ornithological sort of beings and behavior. So I was genuinely very distressed when he he sits down <laughs> to eat his, uh, his his pigeon or his whatever it is, and it goes, ah! and looks up at him and starts attacking him, although, of course, it's just in his head. Um, I, I, I found that I found that very scary, <laughs> and then he goes back to his flat afterwards, and his his, his hat rack. There's two sort of yeah, bird like statues, like a giant sn- and racks. Yeah, <laughs> and, they start, and all that stuff was really well done. Really good practical in camera stuff was being done, like supplemented by some mm. quite well hidden um, visual effects. And yeah, I, I totally agree. I it's, you really get a sense of of just sort of throwing everything at the wall but in the best possible way bringing in all, all these different kinds of special effects of the day yeah uh, and then of course kind of yes go on i was just going to say there's like even the horror approach has a gremlins and poltergeist mm, fight that kind mm-hmm. of keeps it in that in that kind of key for sure for but sure I think kind of what we're building to here is like what is the kind of most significant i would say the most significant reason why this film does have as large of a cultural footprint as one can find for yeah. it is because it is quite a landmark film in terms of visual effects yeah because uh it is the first film to feature a fully computer generated animated character on screen yeah. and uh this this is the only reason i kind of knew uh, oh i had even seen a scene from young sherlock Holmes was because of this scene in particular because the the dissertation i did at uh kings was based around visual effects and performance and I, I did a lot of kind of reading and viewing of all the kind of like early 80s um moments of cgi and a lot uh, <laughs> and trying to find breakdowns where you can and this was one that was kind of constantly referenced as being like the kind of first uh first kind of hurdle covered to get to a point where only a few years later james cameron can start doing like uh the water tentacle in the abyss and the t1000 and yeah terminator 2 and even to for spielberg himself who did study um young shot the one scene in young sherlock holmes abyss and terminator 2 when it came to building up for jurassic park um the the scene in question involves uh one of the targeted old white men being shot with <laughs> hallucinogenic darts and he's a he's a, a minister or a priest in the yeah. church and um his hallucination is um the stained glass window of the church begins to wobble mm. and erupting from it is the knight that's in the image of the stained glass window and approaches him in a slow and menacing fashion. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that whole glass window night was completely computer generated. And uh, it was the effect that kind of meant that this film did get an Oscar nomination for best visual effects. Yeah. And um, it was 
pioneered by a division in, at Industrial Light and Magic at the time that was kind of a division of Lucasfilm and still is to this day and being at that point um, kind of champ uh, led by Dennis Murren who's kind mm-hmm. of the the godfather and or the the grandfather of the kind of modern cgi if you will and uh he um was kind of responsible for a lot of the kind of big developments in visual effects at the time and particularly at this point kind of deciding what divisions were going to do what for different films who was going to take what and uh he gave this particular sequence which they knew they wanted to do with try and do with the a new uh new form of technology that he had been helping to develop he gave this sequence to a division of lucasfilm that was called um the pixar animation group Mm. um and yeah i did indeed say pixar listeners (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) so the pixar group was founded at uh ilm as a kind of division that we're dealing with as i say these kind of assigned uh moments of effects and john laster who was kind of would go on to be one of the key founding fathers of pixar as we know it as an animation studios today was the head animator for the pixar group while they were at ilm and uh he himself um painted a lot of the detail that is in the kind of stained glass night it's an effect that took for for a scene like like what is only About like a minute seconds. long. Yeah, yeah, not. I would not say the actual footage of the knife it's not very long is, at all. Is, is, yeah, is, is minuscule. Yeah, uh, it took six months to animate the sequence, um, using a pioneering process that um, scanned three D models for reference. So they were like actual. Mm. They built like a model of the kind of plates of glass and scanned those into the computer, as and then um, from that. This was a point where any kind of kind of computer generated effect like this would have to then be lasered into the physical film itself, which is kind of mad to think about now when <laughs> it's it literally yeah. <laughs> all just done sat on your <laughs> <laughs> on your database, but they literally had to laser it into the film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I think a very a very smart decision on the part of the animators, which is something that uh, that that Toy Story did as the first feature length. CGI film is you choose something that is not um, a kind of organic matter to animate. So the element of unreality that's implicit in these effects yeah. is kind of masked over. So in Toy Story, they're animated toys, so you expect a degree of sheen and a degree of plasticity to the movements and to the textures, which is why the first Toy Story, even though we've moved on a long way in, in the past 26, Christ, 26 years, it still, it still holds up visually. And I think the same applies to this. I thought it looked incredible. It looked so it does so look very good. Cool. And I think the smart, it looks very yeah, cool. the smart move was 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 to pick something like stained glass and and keeping those textures and keeping that kind of barely three D quality to it. There there is an unreality mm. to the way it moves and to the sort of textures of it that um, yeah, you know. I think the CGI just blends in better because of the material that it's emulating and it's um. Hmm. Yeah, it's just, it was smart, a smart decision on the animator's point. And as you mentioned earlier, the Corridor crew do have a video that they go into a bit more detail about the actual mm. effect itself. So we'll, we'll link that in the, 
description yeah. but that yeah they they bring up a lot of the like those kind of points that you're saying and particularly like this is where they kind of discover that you need kind of motion mm. blur and an effect so it feels like it's actually within the space that they animated shadows like it's mad yeah yeah how much of this is being done for the first time through the computer generated effect it's cool and uh you you kind of do have to thank young sherlock holmes not doing as well as it did for uh, (laughs) (laughs) pixar ending up becoming what it ended up becoming because uh after it didn't do very well at the box office ilm were kind of at a point where they were having to let some divisions go and they let the pixar animation group go independent which led to them literally in the next year in 86 being uh having investment from steve jobs and that is very much the uh kind of key part key diversion that they took to ending up to where we get the likes of toy story and a bug's life and everything that's come since <laughs> and all the shorts in between which i believe the early pixar shorts are on disney plus which you know if you haven't seen mm-hmm. them just just both for a, a history of of the medium and just for some really really good um, short animations definitely worth checking out yeah um, and don't forget to thank young sherlock Holmes when you <laughs> <laughs> when you're there say, say your prayers thank sherlock holmes young sherlock holmes uh yeah so with these sequences that kind of are more effects driven and they're probably the most fun elements of it they are the things that kind of drop away after the halfway point mm. where everyone just gets a bit too wise to the hallucinogens so they just stop doing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and there's there's a part when they they eventually i'm not going to recount the mystery itself because it is quite trite and it's quite um it's quite quite nonsensical ultimately but there is a point when they they find they figure out the pattern to the attacks and they find the next guy in line and they go to his house and he is attacked in his house with one of these poison darts and he's about to begin to hallucinate uh, but they stop him they grab him and they say they they recount his name to him and they try and keep him in the in the in the um in the uh in the, in the conscious world and they prove how easy it is to to, to um get over to, it to, to <laughs> people out of it and you think back to the previous scenes and you wonder why did no one help these people that were flailing in distress like, there's, there's a point when when um um when nice mr um uh, wax flatter is in is in just mm. before he stabs himself with a sword in the chest um wh- when he first gets shot with a dart he's hallucinating in a store and the shopkeeper is standing there behind the counter just going sir no sir don't so, do it, sir. No. So it's, got, it's got the energy of Willy Wonka when he's like, "Wait, no, stop." Wait, no, stop. And it's like, if if maybe anybody, just, maybe just hated the guy. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Just help these people. Just help these people. Anyway, that, 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 that's that's an aside uh, about yeah. How, the, the, how the hallucinogen mean... definitely is more effective when it needs to be then because like yeah. even the kids themselves kind of like just wrap themselves in a scarf and they're kind of okay <laughs> yeah yeah um uh, but yeah they, they, they do kind of fall away and the mystery itself takes over and then there's a lot of it's kind of that his school teacher and his school teachers and the school maid uh two um anglo-egyptian yeah. villagers who have been whose families were all run out of town by these targets who are being taken out when they came over to Egypt as 
younger men to uh, kind of pillage a tomb that they thought they mm. had discovered, um, which has led to this long plan, develop <laughs> long plan and development to come to London, set up an a <laughs> set up a <laughs> a cult underneath London <laughs> uh, with, with a massive fake pyramid, whilst also um, Rafe establishing himself <laughs> as a respected Engli- English gentleman and school teacher. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and like the, so this <laughs> the closing voiceover from Watson kind of does all the heavy lifting yeah. explaining this. And it reminded me of, you know, um, Lemon of Troy and the Simpsons when yeah. Grandpa Simpson's explaining it. And no Flanders had to pay a hefty impound fee. He could easily afford it. It was very much <laughs> that kind of energy. Yeah, because there's even a line out it's just like, um, it's like, and as he established himself as a gentleman, a gentle, a gentle, an Englishman and a gentleman, um, um, he had plenty of time to do this because that pyramid would have taken such a long time to build. That is the only. It's like that pyramid must have taken time to build. Oh <laughs> yeah. All right. Nice one, Watson. Thank you for that. Um. But... I, it's, yeah. Yeah, the whole mystery doesn't really provoke much in, no. in you, and I, and a, a lot of that I just think is more of a writing issue than mm-hmm. it is say anything on on Levinson's part. Even yeah, he yeah, feels a little more anonymous in this than he does in his other movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think he's not quite as um, plugged in when it comes to staging frenetic frenetic set pieces. Um, and there's it, a weird kind of disconnect. And there's also a thing, where, you know, in a, in a film like this one, there's a he was a baddie all along kind of twist. The behavior yeah. of the antagonist, the, the behavior of the character that we thought was a goodie but actually is a baddie, completely turns on its heel as soon as the reveal is made. And it's like they're a different person entirely to the point where, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> before we knew that um, that his mentor character was was the, the villain of the piece. When, whenever we see the Egyptian cult doing their rituals, he's covered in a mask. But as soon as he's outed to Holmes and his friends, he no longer wears the mask. And it's a weird thing that films like this do, where it's like, it's a meta kind of thing where the baddie's hiding from the audience. And as soon as the audience knows who he is, he takes his mask off. Don't and he doesn't need it anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's just a weird little, I don't know, a kind of hacky detail. I, I, don't, I don't like this kind of twist. Unless it's seeded in a way that makes sense, which this very much is not. Yeah, and it, the whole kind of final third is uh, a bit of a misbalance where it kind of runs through the beats of this uh, sacrificial ceremony that's going on in the underground temple in the middle of London made out of wood. Which <laughs> um, <laughs> was taking a long time um, to build. Yeah. I was also sat there just going, did it? it would it? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, like, if you really wanted to, you could probably get that done in like a week or two. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an assumption for him to make as his master of deduction, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> no, the um, is a cool glass of turnip juice. <laughs> What was I going to say? Um, yeah, you have the, this whole sequence where Holmes and Watson realise that it's been Rafe all along. Um, it was Rafe all along. 
all along. <laughs> that'll, that'll be immediately dated as soon as this comes out, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> and they go to rescue Elizabeth, who is now in the clutches of Rafe and is being used as a sacrifice figure for um, this occult. Mm. So she's being taken to... And she's been uh, hypnotised, taken away, and banned, literally like kind of bandaged up alive. And I, I, I don't know if you managed to deduce this, but what is the way that the young women are being sacrificed at this uh, Egyptian altar? Is it acid? Is it just boiling well, water? I, in, <laughs> initially, I, I, my note was: Are they deep frying these mummies? But then it looked kind of like boiling water. So are they... Damn you! I wanted to eat that mummy. <laughs> so I've heard of yummy mummies, but this is ridiculous. I, I think they were like drowning them in scalding water is what it looked like. But that doesn't, that's just a cruel and very painful way to go. So I don't know. Maybe embalming them in some... I, I couldn't tell what the liquid maybe. was. I don't know. But um... I do like that bit, though, where... Uh... Because initially, in the first first time that you see this ritual is when uh, the three heroes, Holmes, Watson, and Elizabeth, have gone to have first discovered the pyramid, and they're looking down at this ceremony taking place. Yeah. And Holmes is kind of sleuthing about, and he's nicking little bits to bring in as evidence. And there's just a point where he's doing all this sneaking around, and he realizes what is happening in the um, ceremony, and he just shouts. Stop! She's alive! And I was like, I think they know. (laughs) (laughs) Holmes! Why are you? So we have this weird little scuffle in this wooden pyramid with the super ineffectual uh, cult members. And the the right-hand man of of Raph, or Rafe, whatever whatever the... Rafe. Rafe, I have such (laughs) a shame for this character. The... the, um, His, his, who turns out to be his sister, who the the sister of the, the boy whose parents were lost during the British colonial. <laughs> why is this? Thing. Why is this the central <sighs> mystery? I don't know. But there's a point it's when so she's 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 fighting with Holmes on on in in this temple, and she gets a blow dart and tries to blow it in his face, but then he blows it from the other end, and he kind of goes back into her throat, and she chokes on this poison dart, and then falls into fire, and she's running around on fire, writhing in agony. And Holmes just kind of stands there and looks at her, completely nonplussed. <laughs> it's okay. It's such a bad a guy. Bizarre, <laughs> such, such a bizarre character beat. Yeah, okay. I mean, she's a baddie and everything, but man, what a horrible way to go. Just do, help her out, dude. Come on. That pyramid goes up fast. I shouldn't have made out of wood. Yeah, no, <laughs> it should have I, taken absolutely. more time. <laughs> And then some more antics and the Raph Wraith. Uh, yeah, the the whole whatever. the whole pyramid's coming down in flames. Yeah. Um Holmes is stuck aside. Watson uh makes a contraption that allows Holmes to survive and pulled up by a massive chandelier, pulled by Rafe's own car as he's trying to get mm-hmm. a getaway. In turn ripping the back wheels off the car and putting mm-hmm. a stop to Rafe in his tracks, leading to a um tragic showdown as it were where mm. um Rafe aims his gun at Holmes um to definitively take him out and Elizabeth jumps in the way of the bullet leading to this kind of moment in tragedy that is kind of Columbus's way of um saying this is 
why Sherlock this Sherlock Holmes turns into the Sherlock Holmes that we all know yeah. and um uh, are more familiar with. Mm. Um how did how did this whole beat work for you? Well, it's not it's not entirely dissimilar to the beat at the end of Casino Royale, you know, when Vesper um her ultimate fate is the thing that hardens Bond and makes him into the kind of yeah, slightly not slightly blatantly misogynistic um figure that he is and but I think um I think Casino Royale is a masterpiece and it puts a lot of work into that dynamic and it, you really feel the weight of that of, of that at the end of the film. This is a, a silly little kids adventure and there is something so tossed off about the way that the film treats Elizabeth as a character anyway. I mean she, she she's not really given the it's presence of women in this just kind of ticking. Yeah. The presence of women in this film is slight to begin with, but the fact that the two women that we sort of do get to know reasonably well, one of them is is, is the sort of coded as crazy sister of the main antagonist who ultimately dies a horribly painful death by choking on a poison dart and catching fire. And the other woman sacrifices her... <laughs> yeah, all the while hallucinating. And the other woman, um, uh, f- for no real reason other than to sort of connect some dots sacrifices herself to save homes and the act in and of itself is kind of is 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 odd enough but it's the 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 tone of the film after the fact after you have this after she takes the bullet Holmes and his former mentor have this heavily telegraphed fencing fight on the ice and then the which ends up with them fighting with paddles rather than swords yeah 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 (laughs) and then 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 rafe falls through the ice and holmes looks on again nonplussed he he loves watching people slowly die um and then it would kind of fade out and then we have an epilogue where watson (laughs) worse a song there and um we have this epilogue where watson kind of merrily closes the book and says oh i will never forget my summer with with holmes i i feel like this isn't the last adventure we're going to have together he took this this quiet awkward boy and made him a confident young man like yeah good for you for having character growth but a woman died i mean yeah it's all well and good that you have your growth but this poor girl died and you don't give a shit do you that really annoyed me. Actually, I really, I, I, I really hate. I hated pretty much every moment that the Watson narration came in. I really, hated yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's just the way that this this poor young woman who who bravely sacrifices herself. Her death is treated as just not even yeah. character growth for the main character, but character growth for the ancillary character, the kind of uh, the Nick from the Great Gatsby character in it. It just really rubbed me the wrong way. It was, I don't know. It, it it was such a bad handling of that beat. I think. But what what did you make of it, Andy? Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's a beat that I feel like you can very much. Granted, this might be out of um, doing the reading around it um, beforehand, but it feels like a quite a telegraph beat that's coming because you have this whole uh, home stressing. Like there's one scene when they're all around the lunch table at school. And they're yeah. all going around. Oh, what do you want to be when you grow oh, up? Oh yeah, and yeah. Home, home says, "I never want to be alone." And then that you get him saying the kind of reverse of that line post Elizabeth saying, "It's all right. I'm just going to be alone." So that there is yeah. For for me, it's I I understand that but the where it's kind of fitting in with Columbus's intention of driving this um 
origin story for Sherlock Holmes, but it, I know it just, it feels more perfunctionary and, um, and can I say box ticking than it does actually driven to establish a credible sense of tragedy and emotion within the kind of audience relation to the characters because I just don't think enough is done with that relationship yeah. to really make it land and hit hard in the way that it you feel like it probably should if it yeah it because like i kept kind of thinking to myself that like the whole film is kind of treating it as the tragedy of sherlock holmes rather than just a fun peppy adventure is kind of yeah when you think about it and particularly with what i'm sure a lot of people know about the character going in anyway that to know that he does become this cold detached often um drug addicted um sociopath for lack of a better word (laughs) yeah 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 it's hard not to kind of Um, feel like you should be viewing this as kind of a tragedy but there's all there's a bit too much flippancy to it yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's fundamentally at odds with itself like let you say that the, the tragedy that is crucial to the character of holmes as we know him is at odds with the flippant fun whimsical adventure movie that the film ostensibly is, and it's a similar problem with uh, with it's a similar kind of foolhardy pursuit as again to, to bring back bloody Solo, which is this is more than anyone's thought of Solo uh, since it came out. I think um, there's this weird thing like th- th- a huge thing for oh Solo I, d- is a... I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Twitter? <laughs> The whole the whole thing about Han Solo's character is that the moment in, in in the very first Star Wars when he comes back at the end and helps blow Vader away and and like clears the runway for Luke to, you know, like bullseye the swamp rat, kind of thing with yeah. the, the Death Star. That's such a huge moment for Han Solo's character. So to go to who he was before he became the person he was before that is such a kind of mental exercise that you just is more harm than good. Like you see this young, I don't know, to, to, to see this young, optimistic person to try and explain how they became this sort of embittered, cynical person, you've got to systematically kind of break down the young, optimistic figure they used to be, and that just doesn't really that kind of. If you're gonna do that, it's do not it, very satisfying. But, <laughs> no, I mean you, you can do a character study like that, of course, uh, but. That just doesn't really sit well within the frame, the, a summer or in this case Christmas blockbuster. It's just a weird kind of innate tension that means that it can never fully satisfy. Hmm. Hmm. I would agree. Are there? Can you think of any sort of approaches to a pop cultural figure like this where they do do the kind of young adventures of or prequel? origin of the character okay what are your kind of key examples or favorite examples because i know we've talked about solo a lot i'm just trying to think if there's one that does it well, well. i think i think the, the the one that i mentioned casino royale i don't know if that quite yeah. counts because it, it it's kind of unofficially a prequel that i think that i guess I mean, that kind per, of works in a way because it, it kind of tries to explain why the character is like he is but although it, to begin with, he's not that different to how he is in subsequent Bond films, but I think there is just more psychological depth to that film, and there's so much more legwork put into that relationship. And Vesper Lind is such a fascinating character. I mean, I, I 
Casino Royale is my favourite Bond film, and it's kind of everything that I want a Bond film to be. So I'm a little bit biased in that, but I think that probably does this this kind of treatment better than anything else I can think of. I'm I'm, I'm racking my Did you ever see? Now, but... Um, I know you mentioned it. Well, we've kind of mentioned it as just kind of what this tone is aiming for, but uh, I'm I'm sure some listeners will be aware of there was a young indiana jones chronicles yeah TV yeah show. did you ever watch any of that because that feels like the kind of closest comparison i can kind of put it with yeah i never did i can picture the the, the video cover from the video shop that i used mm. to frequent as a young lad but no I, never, I don't think i ever watched it no did you i watched a few of them um because like a lot of them were packaged as kind of like yeah, it went for a weird sequence where it was both a kind of limited series and then had a couple of TV movies at the yeah, end of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for the most part, I quite I quite like those ones because they they do that sort of thing where they don't really treat uh treat it as a show where they kind of go, "This is where indie got this. This is where because you you've already had that in the I guess the prelude to Last Crusade." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you get it more that it's Indiana Jones meets uh, um, who does he meet? Uh, Carter at the Egyptian um, excavation where they found Tutankhamun, or mm. um, he it's him meeting the Red Baron in World War One. So you have it more that it's just Indiana Jones meets and or right, Indiana Jones right. in twenties jazz scene chicago it does like the more of a kind of approaching as a hypothetical approach which right. i wonder if, if it's maybe the kind of best approaches to these sort of things where you're not really treating it as um you're more treating it as the further adventures rather than here's where this is here's where this <laughs> yeah where all these yeah. things that we know come from <laughs> i just think it requires a different kind of film because when, when you have a figure like Holmes, uh, even like a film adaptation of the later Holmes adventures, you begin with the character as we know them, and you hope that throughout the film they're taken to a place where they have learned something and grown. So to make a prequel to that, where the character needs to end up in the place they begin at in the original version, it it needs to be a different kind of film because you've got to kind of break the person down, which doesn't it just it just doesn't make for uh, blockbuster entertainment. So, yeah, I think you need to take a different approach. You either need to fit it to a different kind of film or, for a prequel, just treat the character in a different way, put them in a different context, like, from the sounds of it, young Indiana Jones did. Yeah. Um, Is is there any... Can you think of any character where, in anything, where you feel compelled to know what their um, kind of origin story is or... Is there anyone that you would want to see that that kind of period in their life? Because it's um, hard, right? Because I feel it like is most hard. of the time it'd be, it would be no. <laughs> <laughs> so much of... I'm very much of the thought that so much of what is unsaid and so much of what you as a viewer infers is so important to a particular character. And the, the more you try and fill these gaps in, like you, you can show again it all comes back to the cellar but you, you can show us where he got his dice from you can show us why he decided to call Chewbacca Chewie but that that's all um, superficial surface stuff everything you need to know about that character is there in Harrison Ford's performance 
and the kind of implications of the dialogue that Lucas puts in his mouth. And I don't know. And it's like with that, that there's a weird trend in the kind of mid-noughties with horror film remakes where you try and diagnose where these monsters come from. And that yeah. is so infinitely less scary than having Leatherface or Michael Myers be an empty vessel because that unknown quantity is so much scarier than something within our reference points that's diagnosable. So I don't know. I think there's so much power in inference. So, I mean, un- unless un- <laughs> unless you take uh, uh, Lloyd Christmas and Harry Dunn from uh, Dumb and Dumber, because <laughs> oh, the seminal classic Dumb and Dumber when Harry met Lloyd, <laughs> <laughs> which has like one all timer of a scene in it. <laughs> But no, I, to answer your question, I, 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 don't, I don't think that there is anyone that I'm dying to know more about that isn't already there in the text itself. I mean, I mean, was there anyone you had in mind when you asked the question? No, no, I was very much fishing for you to tell me something <laughs> that might make me go, oh, yeah, maybe that would work. But no, for, I'm inclined to agree for the most part when characters are introduced within whatever vessel it is, unless there's been already those kind of uh, discussions outside in a boardroom where they're like, well, we can spin off that, 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 and that, and that, and yeah. seeing what they did there, or what have you. Most of the time, you're going to have enough of the information of the character for it to operate for you in a way that's going to feel satisfying, and enough that either, like, in again, what you're saying in the case of Harrison Ford and Han Solo, a lot of the kind of energy he brings to that is enough for you to kind of get where yeah. this guy has come from, and you have a bit more fun filling in the blanks rather than it being directly told to you. So it's hard to imagine characters where it works. I mean, uh, on the kind of staying on the vein of this, I'm somewhat intrigued by what George Miller does with a Furiosa prequel, if only because yeah. a lot of what we know about that character is her the expression of the kind of pain that she endured mm-hmm. when she was younger. Again, I don't know if that is going to be something that's going to actually end up being um that worthwhile a point to kind of dive deeper into when you do have that kind of addressed yeah. in the character already we'll see but um That's, yeah would, there, there's, I think the, yeah it's weird there's always been a kind of hunger for what well, at least a perceived hunger for these kind of stories mm. which surely would have fed into why this looked like particularly when you're dealing with a figure like Sherlock Holmes who, who is so well known and has been around for so many years in other forms um you probably do and this isn't an element that isn't that is that well explored in the novels that much so that does become that when you're at that kind of end of the line if you will of what you can do with that character let's see what it was like when he was 15 let's go with it (laughs) yeah yeah and, you know, if, you, if you're like Columbus and you're a fan of a particular figure and you want to try your hand at writing some original story set in that world, I think there's no harm in doing that. It's totally fine. I kind of, I, I do appreciate the project of this movie. But then take out the Elizabeth beat, to take out the ultimate fate of her character. You, you don't need that. If you, if you just have, have, you know, have her, have her survive or just 
you don't need to diagnose everything basically you can just you can just have an adventure with this character set in 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 his sort of younger years that alludes to some later activities but i think the, the 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 sort of and it's the same with all these kind of character prequel pieces the perceived need to tie up every single loose end and thread it back into what we know of them is ultimately their undoing so there's a way to make these work i think and that is to just to be a bit looser with it to not feel the need to make it lead like the end of rogue one directly into the thing that it's preceding you know yeah no i'd agree i'd agree um and kind of like let's ferry this journey onto the kind of where young sherlock holmes ends up because it mm. does this whole thing does <laughs> yes. feel like it's designed to um usher in a new franchise of young sherlock holmes yeah. adventures which yeah. unfortunately 90 million dollars off of an 80 million dollar budget will not grant you um, <laughs> <laughs> but um this this film uh whilst it does allude to a lot of like it keeps the kind of initially you're thinking it keeps race um ultimate fate kind of with a little bit of a question mark <laughs> but then that question mark is completely removed for uh young sherlock holmes has a post credit sequence <laughs> yeah so it presages the modern blockbuster trends with with, with much more um precision than we initially thought <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can only think of um I'm trying to think of the, like like the first post credits design. I think the Muppets movie has one, doesn't it? it I think it. Oh, does it? There's a I, point where oh. they shout "Go home" at the end of the credits. Oh, something like a little, a little jokey, jokey joke. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. But not something that's designed the, to feed the, into. No, I think beyond that, um, I think a Dean Martin movie in the '60s had it as a gag with the kind <laughs> of like similar to what James Bond would do, just saying. Um, Forget what cat what character it would have been, but saying like so and so will return. Dean Martin will return. Um, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like this feels feels like the earliest example I can at least think of that is a film trying to set up a sequel with a post credit sequence. Mm, um, yeah, because it is revealed in this sequence uh, that Ray for Etar, his Egyptian given name, which is Ray backwards. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no shit Sherlock it is re- no shit Sherlock <laughs> when it is re- revealed that Etar Rafe has survived and he is he's checking himself into a hotel and <laughs> and signs um, the guest book not as Etar not as Rafe but as Moriarty. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. And it's funny you should do that giggle because he literally does a look at camera and raises his eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make that reference as a joke. I, I didn't, I'd forgotten that he actually did that. Does he really do that? No, no, he, he looks at the camera and raises his eyebrow. <laughs> Ain't I so I wonder how much of it is... It's just they were like, oh, you thought we didn't cover every base point of Sherlock's origin? <laughs> well, we did. <laughs> Rather than actual genuine sequel bait. What were your thoughts? <laughs> I thought, yeah, I thought it was sequel bait. I thought it was, um, I thought it was, yeah, it was reaching for something to follow. with, with But then it, it would just be the same antagonist again. 
it comes out of nowhere as well with a a new scar is he just making up a name I don't know. I wasn't <laughs> sure. So much of that character is... Oh, he's so frustrating, isn't he? That guy, Rafe. He's so... Everything about him is so frustrating. Yeah. I don't know. I just do not know, Andy. I don't know. Unless that is just his original <laughs> Egyptian name. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I just do not know. <laughs> Silly movie. What did you think? Do you, do you, oh, God. I don't know, man. I, I who knows where young and Sherlock Holmes would have gone in further adventures, um, finding I don't know Mayan temples under Nottingham. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, or fortunately, we'll we'll never never know. All we have is this weird little. We'll never act. know. And a little yeah. uh, wink post-credit sequence to make us think about what would have been in the further adventures of young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the only kind of last point I wanted to make was um, more of a kind of a general Amblin brand moment is that this is the first film that features the Amblin logo on the end credits, as it were, but with oh. uh, an original fe- piece of original theme music that John Williams wrote for the studio. Um which I thought was interesting because I I hadn't fully clocked that it either it ever had a theme to be honest. So there no, you go. No. <laughs> Can you hum it? No. <laughs> I can't remember that. <laughs> well, Andy and I will Andy and I will go away and we'll learn it and we'll hum it for next episode, guys, in two weeks' time. But yeah, I think I've yeah. exhausted my uh, like, my discussion I points. I feel that's the the case is closed on young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I think, does, does he have like a catchphrase for when he closes a case? Does he have like a, and that's the end of that chapter kind of thing that he says? Not in that accent. I don't know why I did that accent, but. Um, uh, I'm finished! Idea, Glenn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is, again, which is something that, um, that, that Waffle Faker, what's his name? Wax Flatter says to him. <laughs> Wax Flatter. <laughs> so yeah, 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 that is another box that it ticks in, yeah. <laughs> in the grand origin of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> well, well done. You got a full house, Chris. Christopher. Yeah. Uh, to to kind of surmise, I think we both kind of agree that this is not um, a Barry Levinson film that particularly feels like a Barry Levinson film. No. It's one that seems to operate very much in the key of a Spielberg product, even if Spielberg himself wasn't as kind of hands-on on set as he, as we've known him to be in these productions so far. And yeah, as I think my kind of final thoughts on it is it's just, it's a fantasy, it, uh, not even fantasy, it's kind of like supernaturally tinged adventure movie that never quite... Yeah gets into gear or finds uh, the right level of enthusiasm to I feel kind of capture you into the adventure in the same way as something like the Goonies does totally agree totally agree it's um you can you can appreciate that everyone involved was trying to do something and the the Levinson quote I think about trying to expand his skill set and figure out some new new uh approaches to filmmaking admirable and it's a worthy 
endeavour, but ultimately I think it makes for a swing and a miss of a film. So I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, that does bring us to the end of our discussion on Barry Levinson's Young Sherlock Holmes. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, in our next uh, instalment, we will still be parked in 1985 as we'll be taking a look at what is only the second Amblin movie to be directed by Spielberg himself, uh, his adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Colour Purple. Um, and as always, if you don't have the film to disc, fret not, um, for I shall now tell you where you can find the film uh, to watch it ahead of time along with us. Um, it is available to those of you that have a SkyGo or Now subscription. I won't say Now TV anymore because they have rebranded themselves. Oh, they have, as haven't now. they? Yeah. <laughs> the future is so, yes, now. You can... The future is now. <laughs> so, yes, you can find it on SkyGo or Now if you have a s- subscription to either of those, or you can rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Chili. Google Play, Microsoft Store, Sky Store, and YouTube. We will also be talking about the novel, uh, so if you want to read up on that beforehand and join us in our discussion, then you know procure it from your local book vendor, uh, your local independent book vendor, uh, if you can, because uh, yeah, it'll be a good a good one to have in the back pocket. Um, if you have any thoughts, if you've seen the film previously or indeed read the book beforehand, uh, then do tweet us at ramblinamblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to give us a like, a review, or a subscribe, or even... Mm. No, I said all the things there, didn't I? If you want to give us a like, review, or a subscribe on your <laughs> podcast provider of choice, then please do. We would welcome the attention. We are a couple of attention-loving boys. <clears throat> Give me attention, please. Oh <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Josh, for again joining me as always for these adventures into Amblin. This is one of these ones that I do wonder if we had watched it when we were eight years old, whether it would have quite, whether we'd have a bit more of a mm. nostalgic goggle take to it. it, it so again, even you could feel free to get in touch about past episodes like this one as well. To just to say if you do have any any affection for young Sherlock Holmes, because I, I, it's just not one. I I'm not sure I know anyone else who has seen it. <laughs> no, I, I certainly don't. <laughs> <laughs> this has been our episode on young Sherlock Holmes. We hope you've enjoyed yourselves, and uh, we hope you all take care. Until the next time. I've been Andrew Godian. I have and will continue to be Josh Glenn. All being well. And we have been Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast. And we will see you next time. Bye. Ciao.